Today's reading comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, and Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. Luke. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Swear of God, you may be seated. Every sermon, every week, I live it the entire week before I deliver to you on Sunday. And I am, a, this one has been a fantastic one to meditate on, to think on. I've been preaching this in my sleep, so I'm excited to preach it to you, real people. We are in a series on the Ten Commandments. That is our first reading from Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. We are on the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. In general, I would say that people like their religion to be mystical and not relational. What I mean by this is that many people like yoga and very few people like the Ten Commandments. People are cool with Jesus if that, if that just means getting an emotional high at a conference, camp, or church. But when there is a standard of holiness, it quickly is called legalism. Pastor Leonard Ravenhill said this, when there's something in the Bible that churches don't like, they call it legalism. We, use a, um, we used to sing a song in churches, I surrender all. And many people have said, if we were honest, we would say, I surrender all, except anything that deals with money, sex, anything I want to do or have an inkling of doing. I surrender everything besides those things. It's why the law of God is so despised, even in Christian circles, we want our religion mystical, not relational. We want to have it never actually affect the way we live, but we want some kind of an experience instead. But Jesus, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the Ten Commandments and he goes places we don't want him to go with. We want to be like, Jesus, I'm not stepping out on my spouse, therefore I've kept the Seventh Commandment. And he says, if you've lusted after anybody, you're as guilty as an adulterer. Or how about murder? That's the big thing people say. I'm not a murderer. And Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart towards somebody, that is the same as murder. The Ten Commandments and the Ten Commandments God and then Christ's teachings themselves, they go places where we would like to say, Jesus, don't go there. With the Ten Commandments, Jesus goes there. When it comes to this commandment, thou shalt not steal. I know I have a special relationship with this in that before I knew the Lord, 
when I was much, much, much younger, um, not even a teenager, me and my friends liked to steal stuff. Um, just a fact, we were little pickpocket thieves, like from Oliver Twist, except we'd just steal, we'd just shoplift things at store. And the bigger the thing, the more, you know, people, our friend group would be excited about that thing. And I remember one time stealing something, one of my, one of my friends snitched on me, um, and, uh, and it went from there. When I got saved, God gave me such a tender spirit towards theft, to where I don't even want to be anywhere close to that. Sometimes it drives my wife crazy because I don't even pick up chains off the, change off the street. You know, pick a penny, pick it up, and all day you'll have good luck. I'm like, pick a penny, pick it up, and you're a thief, and you'll, and you'll be judged by God for that. <laughs> In fact, one time last year, we were at General Council, and we were at a Walgreens, and there was a $100 bill on the floor. And I picked it up. And I went to the register. I actually stood in line. It was a long line. I didn't want people to know, but whatever. I didn't want to stay there forever either. And so I just told them, hey, this was in this aisle. So if somebody comes and they missed their $100 bill, um, this is where it's at. And the people in line are like, what are you doing? Why don't you just keep it? Because it's not mine. It's not what God gave to me. So why should I do this? So God's given me a very, a very tender spirit um, according to this. Why is stealing bad? That's the commandment. Now, stealing is bad because God says so, and it should just be right there. Alistair Begg said this, When we steal from another person, we do not simply sin against them, we sin against God. Because everything on this earth is the Lord's. He gives it to who he gives it to. And for us to take it is to show contempt of that person and God. Why shouldn't we steal? Simply, it's because God said not to, and that should be good enough. But if we are to go deeper, it's because stealing shows a lack of faith. In breaking the eighth commandment, we break the first commandment to have no other gods before him, because when it comes right down to it, we steal because we don't truly believe that God is Yahweh Jireh, God my provider. I can't trust God to provide for me, so I have to take. Everything is God's, not just the 10%, but everything. So we steal something. We are stealing from God first, our neighbor second. And in this, we break both of the most important commandments to love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In our culture, we sort of admire thieves. Um, we, sort of admire, we sort of admire thieves. We have uh, Ocean's Eleven, Danny Ocean. He's a cool guy. He's a thief. Sometimes we think, hey, it's cool if we just steal from the rich and give to the poor, like Robin Hood. Teddy Roosevelt said this, The Eighth Commandment reads, Thou shalt not steal. It does not read, Thou shalt not steal from the rich man. It does not read, Thou shalt not steal from the poor man. It simply reads, plainly, Thou shalt not steal. We have admire thieves like Danny Ocean from Ocean's Eleven. We have admire thieves in our fiction like Robin Hood or Jane Cobb who steal from the rich and give to the poor. And sometimes we make excuses for ourselves when we steal. We steal from our job. We steal from people. We're like, well, they can spare it. Should not be so. In this commandment, we see something behind God. God's commandment is that God believes in private property. 
One thing this commandment reveals is that God believes that there is private property, that there is blessings that God gave you, and they are to stay with you unless you give them away. For someone to take that is to take from God himself. We see this We see this in living color in the book of Acts. There is a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They had people in the community at this time. They sold their land and they gave everything they had to the church to be used for the church. And they were admired or people maybe said good things about them. So Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their land. They take a portion from their, for themselves, but they tell everybody else, we gave everything to the church. The apostle Peter t- brings them in one by one. And he tells them, what? That the land was yours to do with what you wish. Sometimes people use this as in, a, as in a proof text for socialism or communism. Not at all. Peter says it was your land. You could have kept it all. You could have done nothing with it. It was up to you, but you decided to lie about it. God, that God respects, God not respects, but God believes in private property. After all, you cannot steal something that is not of that person's. This is probably something that pastors for too many years have been saying that's wrong, that that socialism and communism is good in theory, but wrong in practice. It's wicked in theory. It's wicked in practice because it's legalized theft. Alistair Begg gives gives a list of 13 ways we steal. I'm just going to give a brief commentary on each one of these as we go along. We have blatant theft. That's like what me and my friends did. Took things from uh, the local store, candy bars, and things like that. It is the pickpocket, people who just literally steal. It's also borrowing and not returning. Psalm 37, 21. Oh, I was just borrowing it. It's like when in college when people borrowed my copy of Ocean's Eleven and I never saw it again. That is also stealing. Borrowing and not returning. What do you got in your shop that's your neighbor's that you maybe forgot about? Um, It is failure to clear a debt when we have money to clear the debt. It is dishonest scales, Amos 8.5. In fact, it is kind of an idiom in the Old Testament of dishonest business practice. In fact, it says that God, that, that, uh, that dishonest scales are abomination towards to the Lord. And what that is, what's behind that is in order, the commerce in those days was based on weight. It's some amount of weight of different precious metals and things like that. Now in Roman times, it was, it was actual coinage. And so dishonest scales would mean that um, you have a certain amount of weight on your side, so they have to give more weight on their side, and you are cheating them. I was told recently that butchers used to be taught that you got paid based on your thumb. And what that meant is as they were weighing your meat, they would put their thumb down on the scale, and they got what was left over. Now, as I understand, that's not the case anymore, so you don't have to be eyeing your butcher. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord. Employee integrity. Are you an employee of integrity or are you stealing from your your place of business by either inactivity or by literally taking items that belong to your company? It is wasting others' possessions. This is very relevant for those of us who have rented or do rent. That is not your property, you are renting it. So if you trash it, you have stolen the worth of that property from the landlord. Now, this is something that almost kind of drives you insane, especially if you've rented many places, because you find out there's ways the landlord makes it so they don't have to give you your security deposit. 
So your inclination is like, well, I don't have to take care of the place. No, you still have to take care of the place. Wasting another person's possessions is also thievery. You have employee integrity. James 5, 4 talks of employee integrity that the lost wages of the worker cry out against them. This is something that you can legally steal from your employees. It's bankruptcy. And you might be square with the law, but you are not square with the Lord. If you decide one day, I'm shutting down shop, it's bankruptcy, I don't have to pay the wages of my employees. You might be square with Uncle Sam, but you are not square with the Lord. The Lord knows that you do not pay what you owe. It is stealing reputation. That is slander. Now maybe you're like, that's next week. Well, all the commandments are linked towards one another. You end up breaking one, you end up breaking others. And one of those is stealing reputation by slandering, by speaking lies against other people, speaking evil against them. So people look less of them in their eyes to look better of you in your eyes. We don't... We should talk a lot about gossip and slander in the church because it happens in the church all the time. And you are stealing their good reputation. Stealing moral purity. You're like, maybe, wait, that was last week we talked about that. What's this week too? To seduce somebody else and to steal their purity from them. Here's one. We're about to have school in two weeks, is it? Sorry, teenagers, for reminding you of that and those who are going to school. Um, plagiarism is stealing. When you put off, hey, this is my work, but you just copy and paste it from somebody else's article. That is thievery. It is stealing their intellectual property, and it is theft. This happens in pulpits probably across America today, in which a pastor will just copy and paste and try to make it seem like his own. You notice at the beginning of this, I said this was Alistair Begg's list, not my list. Even though I'm providing my own commentary and all that, and none of you probably would have known, I have an integrity issue that I cannot steal somebody else's intellectual property. This also goes to this next commandment of lying. In fact, we have a term in ministry called speaking evangelistically. Some of you are already starting to laugh. You know what I'm talking about. Evangelists have a, have a tendency of exaggerating, i.e. lying, about what happens in their meetings, this is also stealing. You're stealing um, from people in their own minds of what they think of you. Talked about the classroom already, and it's it's also failure to give God what you owe him. In Malachi, it says, well, a man robbed God, but you've robbed me in your tithes and offerings. This goes much further than tithes and offerings, though, because everything is God's. Do you see that in your life? Not just your money, but your property, the people you love. Are you giving them to God or are you selfishly holding on to them? In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, it's a book about a a bus that goes from hell to heaven. And one of the people in hell, she's asking about her son who's in heaven. And it's very clear to her, for her to have her son is to rip him from heaven to go to hell with her instead of her going to heaven to be with her son but she would rather him go to hell with her than to be separated in heaven. Are you holding on to your kids in such a way to where they're not gods either? Everything is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. And it's failure to give to God what you owe him. For this command, I think it's important for us to see how Jesus reacted to a thief. In Luke chapter 19, there's a little man there named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Climbed upon a sycamore tree to savor he would see. 
In the story from, Acts, in, from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we have one, a thief, two, the Lord, and three, a seeker. Let's start here. Verses 1 through 4, we have the introduction of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Let me set the stage for you about tax collectors. Tax, now, today, we don't think, well, hopefully we're not too mean or hateful towards IRS agents, but not a lot of people like IRS agents. And now that they have doubled the amount of IRS agents, tax collectors, I doubt people like them anymore. And if you've been audited, you probably have a hard time separating the person from the agency and all that. Let me tell you something. How you feel about tax collectors today holds nothing to, not even a candle, to the way people felt about tax collectors in Jesus' day. See, let me give you an illustration of how much people hated tax collectors back then. Um, it's actually right after the time of Jesus Christ in AD 60 in Britain. So Britain was a, was a fabled island according, uh, um, that the Greeks knew about, but nobody really ever went there until Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, when he was 30, came across this statue of Alexander the Great. And he starts like crying and weeping because he's like, I've wasted my life by 30. Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. And I'm like, I'm, I'm 38. And I'm like, I guess I got to get to it here. I got to conquer something. But um, he started crying. He's like, and he's like, I won't rest until I've conquered as much, if not more than Alexander the Great. So when he was over in the region of the Gauls, the Germanic tribes, he he sailed out, found the country of the Britons, and he sent his legions out there, and he conquered all these different um, areas of, of uh, Britain, and these are these different tribes. And instead of setting up um, colonies and occupations, really these tribes got to govern themselves. And this is the story of Queen Boudicai and a tax collector. Boudicai was the wife of one of the chiefs slash kings of one of these tribes called the Essenes. The Essenes, they were a prosperous tribe, a good, a good tribe. They were loyal to Rome, giving their, giving their tribute, their tax, every year consistently to Rome. And then Boudicca's husband passes away. And in his will, like in the will of so many people, it had an acknowledgement that Rome really owned the land, even though they got to rule themselves and they just had to give tribute. The local tax collector on purpose decided to interpret this, that he was ceding over his lands and property over to the Roman government, i.e. him. And so he goes there with a bunch of soldiers. They take over the land. They farm the farms themselves. They take several free Icenes in slavery over back to Rome. He has her daughter's brutalized in front of her, and then he beats her in front of the rest. She then allies herself with so many of the other tribes. They sack several Roman cities, almost wipe Rome out of Britain. Unfortunately, though, the end of the story is that another captain comes with a legion, and they almost wipe out Boudicca's um, people. Um, all this to say that I think they probably like tax collectors a little more than the Judeans liked tax collectors. The Jewish people at this time, they had reason, they, at least they believed they had reason, to especially hate tax collectors because unlike the Britons, they were a people under the subjugation of Rome. They were not their own. They didn't have their own king that they appointed. Rome appointed a king named Herod. What does Herod do? He kills their children. 
kills their children. His soldiers sought out every boy of a certain age and had them murdered. And where does he get money to pay the soldiers to kill their children? Tax collectors. These tax collectors weren't Roman citizens. They were not people from Rome. They were your neighbor who bid to get the contract to collect the taxes that oppressed you. Zacchaeus here, he is a chief tax collector, and he has been made rich. The way the tax collecting um, came about, you'd bid to get the franchise, and then every year you were expected to collect X amount of money. And everything you collected over that was yours. And he became rich like this. He was not a very well-liked person. In much of the Gospels, it will talk about the people who are coming to see Jesus. It'll talk about the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It'll talk about the sinners. And then a separate category were tax collectors. Tax collectors, even though they were rich, they were on the bottom of the social order of the day. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as swindlers. They were seen as thieves. And all of that was probably true. And here is this man, Zacchaeus. He is a rich, cheap tax collector. In verse 1, it says he entered Jericho. Jericho, we remember the history of Jericho. People of Israel, they are coming back into the promised land. They come across Jericho. God tells them, walk around it seven times, um, seven days. At the last day, scream, and the walls came a-tumbling down. I sang a song in college, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho. I, always thought, that, I thought that song was weird because, one, I didn't know fit meant fight. I'm like, he fit? What does that mean? Um, and then I was like, if you're saying that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, that's very generous because it seems like God fought the battle and, and Joshua was there. But we know the story. It's dramatic, right? The walls come tumbling down. Nothing really happened to them. They came tumbling down. What a miracle. It shows up in all these books about heroes in the Bible. But what is happening in Jericho this day makes that miracle seem like absolutely nothing. Because let me tell you something. There are many kingdoms with walls bigger than Jericho that people ripped down, including Jerusalem's. In AD 70, the Romans rip down their walls and leave only one of them standing. It's called the Wailing Wall today. But all the people of all the earth could unite with one purpose, to change a human heart, to bring salvation. And we could be in concert with each other. We could be in perfect unity and we would fail to do this. But for this tax collector, Jesus does this. We are in Acts chapter, we are in, sorry, we are in Luke chapter 19. If you turn back one page to, to Luke chapter 18, you have an event in Jesus' life where he is encountering a man. We call him the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler. Zacchaeus is the rich tax collector. If you remember this story, and you can look back at it right now, or you can go back to my very first sermon on this series, I preach on this rich young ruler. He was moral. He was young and he was rich. He had everything anybody could have ever wanted. And in his encounter with Jesus, he is left weeping. But after the encounter with Jesus that the chief ta- this chief tax collector have, he is rejoicing. If you remember from that encounter, the young man was moral of a high station. He let, but he left Jesus and he was weeping because Jesus told him to sell everything he had and give the money to the poor and come follow him. 
then Jesus gives a parable about how difficult it is for a tax for sorry for a rich man to enter the kingdom. This tax collector is not moral. He's of low station and he is rich. Jesus said how hard it was, how difficult it was for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus' disciples said, well, if he's not saved, then how can anybody be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And I've been rejoicing this whole week because I think about this story and I think, and Jesus is proving it. This man isn't even like the the rich young ruler who had this moral basis around him. He was probably a giving person, giving his tithe, making sure he took care of his parents. But this tax collector, he is truly chained by the power of Jesus Christ. He does not ask to give. He gives out of the joy that he has knowing Jesus Christ. One chapter later, God, Jesus has proven that with all things are possible. With Zacchaeus, he is desperate to see Jesus. Verse 2, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Verse 3, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. Every man under six, say amen. Um, So he ran on ahead and climbed onto a sycamore sea to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus, he is desperate to see Jesus. Jesus is coming to town, and this man is desperate to see the teacher who has been causing all this stir all around Judea. One problem, he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. So he couldn't see. And here's the thing, though. If you don't care, really care, if, like you're just kind of excited, but if you don't really care about the person and it's troublesome, all right, I'll figure out something different. I remember when I, I was growing up, I grew up in North Dakota. Let me tell you something. Iowa, politicians care about Iowa because this is where the caucus is. North Dakota, nobody cares about North Dakota. It's something I lived with. And I remember reading this article about the president at the time. I can't remember if it was Bush or Clinton. And he was at this, he was giving a commencement address and all these students were protesting. And I remember thinking at the time, what a bunch of ingrates. At least somebody cares enough to go to your your silly little town or whatever. And then I grew up and I, you know, for eight years we lived in Dubuque and politicians, like, you know, politicians haven't come here to Algona. I think um, uh, Reynolds was in um, Cinco de Mayo like about a month or so ago. But anyway, I remember one time specifically because Obama, who was president at the time, had a rally over in a park that I had to go through to get home. And so I remember what I said when I was a kid, and then I realized, well, that was just stupid young Jason talking about this because I'm going around because I don't care. (laughs) If you don't care, you don't make a big effort to see. But he does care. He is desperate to see Jesus. One thing that is encouraging about this event is how Jesus doesn't make this man do anything before he he has lunch with him, before he has dinner with him. So many people will stay away from church because they are living a life of sin. They think, once I clean myself up a bit, then I can come. See, you don't come here because you're clean here today. You come here to become clean. You're watching today and you're like, "Ah, I'd come to church, but the roof would cave in. Don't worry, our roof is made out of metal. It's not caving in anytime soon. You know, one thing, just here in verses 1 through 4, we have the introduction of Zacchaeus. We know something about the loneliness of sin. 
We come from a highly individualistic society, but Zacchaeus didn't. The Jewish people have always been a close-knit one. It's part of the reason why there's so much anti-Semitism or hatred against Jews throughout all history. It's because people saw this group who stuck together, who were together, that they would rather die than give up their friends and neighbors. But Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus has nobody to lift him up to let him go in front. He was a small guy. He's not obscuring anybody's view if you just usher him up to the front to see Jesus coming by. In chapter 5 of Luke, we have a group of friends who are true friends. Jesus is teaching. He's healing the sick. And their friend, who was so sick he couldn't move, they bring him up on a gurney. They rip up some dude's roof and they lower him through because they were desperate to have their buddy see Jesus. When Zacchaeus, But where is Zacchaeus' friends to lift him up? They're nowhere because he doesn't have any. He has chosen money and everybody hates him for it. There's a loneliness to sin, a loneliness that many suffer through that they would give up just about anything for that loneliness to end. Zacchaeus can't see the Savior coming through. He can't see this teacher coming through. And nobody cares. After all, he's a tax collector. Here's the second part of this story is the Lord. You know, there are so many people. Everybody's coming up, and everybody's not only just seeing Jesus, not every people are with Jesus, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. So are a lot of people because they're going there for the Passover. And they're walking by Jesus. If they only knew, if they could only have the faintest conception under God who they were walking with, they would have been desperate for him to have lunch with them too. To hear from him. Because they could receive something so much greater than their, their minds could possibly comprehend. Zacchaeus, he's desperate to see because there's something that Zacchaeus tells him. This guy is different. I need to at least see him. There are a lot of people all around Jesus, but only one guy gets the blessing Jesus has that day. Jesus predicts this in the previous chapter. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus gives a short story about a tax collector and a Pharisee. In the short story, he talks about how both of these men are in the temple and both are praying, but only one is justified. One is moral. He keeps the law outwardly near perfect in manner. He thanks God that he is not like other people, like this tax collector. The other man who is a tax collector beats his chest and won't even look up to heaven and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The, this is the first man's problem. It is not that he didn't keep the law. It is not that God did not keep him from sin. It's that he was the other man and he couldn't see it. But here's the thing. You have no need for a Savior if you're your own Lord. You have no need for a Savior if you're your own Lord. If everyone that day knew who this really was that they were walking by, they too would have what Zacchaeus has at the end of this encounter. But you don't believe you need a Savior if you are your own Lord. How does Jesus know his name? Verse 5 is interesting, right? And Jesus came to a place. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. How does Jesus know his name? He's just entering Jericho. I think there's a couple possible reasons for this. Maybe other people saw Zacchaeus from a distance and they told Jesus about Zacchaeus. Hey, you see that guy, that, 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 that silly guy, short guy in the tree? His name is Zacchaeus. He's a real sinner, Jesus. 
He's not only a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. He's rich. He's rich off of the money and the blood and sweat of your people. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. But I know this. Jesus is the one who leaves the 99 lost sheep to go after the one. The 99 sheep who are with him to go after the one who is lost. Many times in the Gospels it says that Jesus could hear their thoughts. It's a powerful fact that Jesus knows your name and that he calls you by name. He knows you and he calls you by name. This is such a powerful, moving thing because I think of this. There's a part of me that only certain people know depending on the intimacy they have with me. It's not that I act a different way with anybody, but I talk about things that I don't talk about with other people if I don't think that they're going to get much out of them. It's like me and my, uh, my friend Jeff from North Dakota, we've had long talks about which superhero can beat up another superhero. I don't talk to you about that because I know you wouldn't understand. Seriously, though, I have friends in my life. I have family members who don't know the Lord, so I don't tell them about the incredible ways God has moved on my heart this week. I don't tell people who are good Christian friends everything the way I do my wife because she has a greater amount of intimacy with me. And here's the thing. No person on the face of this earth knows me the way Jesus knows me. There is a me that none of you will ever have an idea about because it's only it's the only it's the part of me that only Christ knows in the most deep intimacy of prayer that everything I have is laid before him because he knows me by name he looks at me and he says Jason today I will eat in your house he knows my name here's another parallel between the rich young ruler and this rich tax collector. Jesus sees both, and he loves both. It says in after eight, chapter 18 that this rich young ruler, that Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Then he tells him something that breaks his heart. But with Zacchaeus, he tells him something that changes his heart. This is a command. In verse 5, Jesus tells him, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This isn't a question. This isn't a request. It's a fact. I like that. Sometime I need to do this. Be like, today I'm meeting at your house. <laughs> you know, there is a sense in which Jesus knocks at, is at the door and he is knocking, wanting you to let him in. This is in Revelation and Jesus is talking to the church. Those who already are believers. For unbelievers... Sometimes it's gentle, and sometimes it's not so gentle. For Zacchaeus, he sees him up there. I'm at your house today, buddy. For Paul, who became an apostle, he's walking down the road. He's walking, la, 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 la. And Christ knocks him to the ground. <laughs> you ever see it like that? Sometimes we have this, like, mystical thing, and it's like, oh. God knocks him to the ground and says, why are you persecuting me? This isn't gentle, nice hippie Jesus. This is a Jesus. He's like, you're mine and you're going to stop acting like you're not. Zacchaeus, Jesus knows his sheep and the sheep know his voice. Behind the scenes, there's so much going on here that we are not reading about at this moment. We get the first initial hint at the length of this man, at, at the length this man is willing to go to see Jesus. But when Jesus speaks to him, he leaps down and receives Jesus with joy. 
The work of salvation is so much more than we see. Some people, they live a life of religion. They seem perfect on the outside. They seem spiritual, and then they fall away. Others live lives like Zacchaeus, and there's a moment in time they fall into the arms of Christ, and salvation is truly of the Lord. That is what Jonah said in the belly of a whale, and it is true today. There are so many verses I was thinking about this, about how salvation is the Lord, how the Holy Spirit draws us to him, that we first come to him because the Father draws us. But I think this one really spells it out, especially in Zacchaeus' case, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when you got your act together. In the midst of your most heinous sin, Christ dies for you. And that is why it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's what we see here, the joy of Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him and he knows his name. When seeing Jesus reach out to this guy, it says that the people with him, that they were grumbling. They expected Jesus to be about them, not this traitor. It is so true today, isn't it? Jesus is about me. He's not about those other guys, right? Jesus is on my side of the political spectrum. He's not on their side of the political spectrum or vice versa or whatever. Whatever happens to be the hot topic of the day. We were at, we were at the uh, Skillet concert. And one thing John Cooper said I thought was really powerful. He's like, you know what's the really nice thing about music? Is that everybody here right now is going to forget for the next two hours that you hate each other. And I'm like, it's a sad state we're in, isn't it? This, these people, they see this tax collector, something good happening to a bad person. And they grumble. But this isn't a first thing. People grumbled throughout all of the Bible, right? We see as they're, as they're wandering in the desert, they're constantly grumbling, 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 grumbling. Watch out. You might go from grumbling to becoming a grumble. C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, the character of George MacDonald, who is Scottish. I'm not going to do a Scottish accent, maybe. I don't know. Um, he tells uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, the, 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 the narrator in the story, he sees these women and they're complaining. And he's like, yeah, they're, they're grumbling. And, and uh, George McDonald's like, no, they're not grumbling. They've become a grumble. And here's the uh, further quote. This is the actual quote. That is just my paraphrase. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. The people grumble, but Jesus has lunch with Zacchaeus because he is the seeker. Verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10, I'm going to reread it again here. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, um, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, and he also, for he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And the, probably started in the 70s, it was very popular in the 90s, it was called the seeker-sensitive movement. 
It's a seeker-sensitive movement. The idea behind it was that you want to accommodate people to come into your church, like a business would accommodate customers. Well, we are a seeker-sensitive church, but here's the thing. We understand there is only one seeker, and he is seeking to save that which is lost. That Romans 10 and 11 is absolutely true, for it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. See, this is the problem with so many churches. They became so commercialized. They became so much like a business trying to appease shareholders and customers instead of being the community of faith they should have been. About being seeker-sensitive, we are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work in our church and in these cities that we come from. Look at the gospel. See what Jesus does. He travels around places to get to certain people. He walks through the crowds to say, Zacchaeus, today I will, I, will, I, I will eat in your house. Jesus is the seeker. He comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Zacchaeus here, you know something that's amazing because he understands he's been a thief and he understands restitution. When someone was caught stealing in the law of God in the Old Testament, they were required to admit it, to pay it back, and to pay it back what they've stolen, and then a fifth more. But Zacchaeus goes far beyond that, four times what he had stolen, and he gives half of what he has to the poor. Jesus doesn't ask him to do this. Jesus asked the rich young ruler to sell everything he has, give the money to the poor, come follow him, and he'll have treasure in heaven. Zacchaeus is not asked to do any of these things because he has a real encounter with God. Zacchaeus gives more than the law requires, so much more. Legally, here's the thing. Legally, in the Roman law system, they couldn't care less about a tax collector who's skimming from the top as long as he made his quota. But God did care. Why is Zacchaeus moved to this? We already know the answer. He ate with Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus. Many will say they had an encounter with Jesus that Jesus is their best friend, that they love Jesus more than all things, and they will still live the same life. They'll still, they will tell stories about camp meetings, conventions. Tears will flow down. They will even talk about supernatural works of the Holy Spirit, but if their behavior doesn't change, nothing really happens. If I showed up 30 minutes late today, and I looked exactly the way I do now, and Josh, you know, he's the, he's the worship leader, and he's like, where were you? And I'm like, oh, it was crazy. I was walking down the street, and all of a sudden, Paul runs me down with his 18-wheeler. And I look exactly the same I do now. Josh would be like, that's a lie. What? How dare you? You know why he'd say it's a lie? Because there's no way I could have an encounter with an 18-wheeler that intimate and remain the same, look no different. But people say they had an encounter with the God who made galaxies and remain unchanged. It is not works that save us, it is faith. But faith expresses itself through works. There is a change that happened in Zacchaeus' heart. And he cannot be the same any longer. He understands the opposite of what he's been doing. Ephesians 4.28 spells it out for us. Anyone who's been stealing must no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. This is the great disservice so many churches, perhaps even ours in the past, have done to members, to the family of God, 
is that we let people stay in a situation where they're only takers and never givers. And we never expect out of them to engage the family of Christ the way that God intended them to be. And we allow them to continue doing that, and we then rob them of the spiritual blessings. It almost seems like we're doing something good for them. No, we're not. We're enabling bad behavior, and they will not get the blessing that God wants for them. If you steal, stop stealing. Work with your hands so that you might have something to give to those who are in need. That doesn't play well. It does not play well in the press. It does not play well in most churches that when you tell somebody, stop living by deception, start doing something practical so that you can give with somebody who is in need. So not this church, so don't be trying to think I'm talking about anybody here. But I remember I was in a church and I had to talk with somebody because they were just kind of going from scam to scam to scam. And when the scam blew up in their face, they were like, God, why are you doing this? And I told them, it's not God, it's the consequences of your own actions. You knew that you couldn't sign up for that program, so you lied. So that you could get more out of this state than you should have. You should not have done that and you wouldn't have been in this position. You shouldn't have put your uncle down as your co-signer when your uncle didn't know about it. And now you're in legal trouble. That was your fault, not God's fault. It didn't fall out of the sky. And remember, I had to pray about this because I didn't want to come across as probably what I'm coming across right now is arrogant. I did so in a very loving, very gentle way. But to be very clear with them, according to Ephesians 8, stop stealing, stop running scams, and do something useful so that you can share with those who are in need. Every one of you has a position here at this church. You have a ministry at this church. You're important. You're vital. You're part of the body at this church. This is how the law, you see Zacchaeus here, he gives half of what he has to the poor, and then he saves the other half so that he can make good on his thievery in the past. And he does so not begrudgingly. Now I got to do this with tears, like he's giving away his only son. No, he does so with joy. Psalms 1 tells us that the wise man, his delight is in the law of God. How does it become like that? Well, look at this event. Zacchaeus Zacchaeus was a shrewd and immoral businessman, but now he has joy giving away what he has because Christ, the seeker, has found the lost sheep. We talk about being lost a lot in church. But I don't know if we know what that means. It doesn't mean misplaced. The word here for a law for lost for lost is sorry. Here we go. Found it. Um, Apollomy, which means to be destroyed, to lose without much hope for recovery. The word is part of the name of Apollyon, which we read about in Revelation, who is known as the destroyer. That is fitting, since the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But God has come to give us life and have it to the full. He is the seeker of that which is lost. Christ comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Verse 10 really says it, doesn't it? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus will give a series of short stories about a lost item that is found. He starts off with a woman who loses a coin. She sweeps the house until she finds it. She is desperate to find this. And the word for lost there is a, is a plomy. I've lost it. 
You know, it's like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, right? Lost, my precious is lost. There's a desperation to find what is lost. Then Jesus amps it up. He says, what about one of you who are a shepherd? If you have a lost sheep, don't you go out. You leave the 99. You go after the one. He's a plumey. I may never see him again. I will do everything to recover the lost sheep. And every shepherd is like, yeah, because I'm responsible for that sheep. I'm going to find that sheep. Then he talks about a man who had two sons. And both of these are lost. One is lost in a faraway country and one is lost right at home. As the people listen to the story of the prodigal son in Jesus' time, they're wondering, what is up with the older brother? The younger son goes off in a faraway country, he's spending everything he has, there's a famine. How come the older brother is not doing what he should be doing, seeking and saving his lost brother? It would have been on the older brother to go into the faraway country, take his brother, whether by the hair or willingly, come back home. You're a son of the father. Stop acting this way. We love you. We will restore you into the family. There's somebody missing the parable, and people get that as they're listening to Jesus' story. And then Jesus, in chapter 10, says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, because he is our true older brother. Worship team, would you come up at this time? He finds us. Not when we are ready to come back and to clean ourselves up, but he finds us in the filth, in the pig pen. He cleans us. Jesus doesn't even ask the keys to do what he does. It is the kindness of God that leads to this repentance. In the story of Zacchaeus, when we look at it from the perspective of Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, you shall not steal, we understand that there is good news for thieves. There's good news for thieves because there is a Savior. But here's the thing. Do you see yourself in need of a Savior? Or are you like the Pharisee who, who looks arrogantly to heaven and say, thank you, God, I'm not like these others. Thank you, God, I'm not like those folks who don't come to church, those who live this way or vote this way or whatever. Thank you, God, I am not like them. Or do you realize your own need for a Savior? Do you realize that Jesus is seeking you right now where you're at? And here is the challenge for you today who are believers, is that God wants to use you to seek and to save that which is lost. That his Holy Spirit is inside of you. And when Jesus went to be with the Father, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Now go. You are now the hands and feet of Christ to go and find Zacchaeus, to bring him back into God's loving arms. God wants to use you for this. Becca and I were talking about this trope in movies and, and everything of the person who through coincidence or through divine or whatever is in the right place at the right time. This is so much fun, I thought, in Westerns. Because of this stranger wandering through town, there's all these problems, and he fixes all the problems, and then he leads town. It's like, shame! Such a cool trope, but it's like, you know, they, they took that from the scripture, though. Because that's what Jesus does in his earthly ministry. And then there's somebody, after Jesus' early, after his earthly ministry, after Jesus goes to be with the Father, it's in the book of Acts, there's a guy named Philip. And Philip is killing in the ministry. And God, and by that it means he's doing really, really well. I don't know if that's still a term people use or not. It's what I use. Anyway, and God, there is this Ethiopian eunuch that is one of, one of God's sons. And he takes Philip physically from one location to another. Philip teleports. I thought that was so cool because this is what God does for us in our life, believers. You are where you're at because 
God wants to use you to seek and to save that which is lost. You're at the dead-end job. Every, every day you're going to it, and you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I hate it. Maybe you don't like your town. That's one thing in my heart I've always been like, whatever town I am, I'm in, I'm going to bless. I'm going to be excited for it. After I leave, I start seeing issues with it, you know, but I'm in the town. But maybe you're like, oh, I, can't, I can't wait to get out of here. Maybe some of you younger people, you're like, as soon as I turn 18, off to Hawaii. You are exactly where you're at for a reason. You are exactly where you're at because God has positioned you in your job, in your family, in your school, wherever you happen to be for such a time as this to fulfill the heartbeat of God to the people you are around. Christ will give, use you to give hope to thieves, to murderers, to adulterers and idolaters. For there is no sin that is greater than the Savior, and he will use you to rescue the perishing. If, 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 you'll be open. If you'll be open, if you truly mean, I surrender all, I truly am yours. But if you're holding something back, well, it'd be hard to hear God's voice when there's so much noise going on in your life. Worship, worship team, would you please lead us in our final song? This is our time to respond to God's message today. Maybe you are a Zacchaeus and you hear him calling your name. That today is the day of salvation. He says of Zacchaeus, salvation has come to his house today for he is a son of Abraham. You understand what that means to a man like Zacchaeus who lived his life with people not even wanting to cross the street to spit on him, not seeing him as another Jew for Jesus to say he too is a son of Abraham, but now he's become a brother of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a Zacchaeus, and today repentance and faith is yours. Or maybe today you need to realize that Jesus wants to use you to rescue thieves, to rescue sinners, to rescue those who are aflomi, lost. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And as his hands and feet, we do the same. Would you please stand as we sing our final song?